end of Parshas Maseh, the very end of Chumash Bamidbar, we have a continuation of the story of Benot Tzalafchad, the daughter of Tzalafchad, that we began in Parshas Penchas. <coughs> so back in Parshas Penchas, the story was that Tzalafchad died with no sons. His daughters petitioned Moshe to be able to inherit his estate in the absence of sons. Moshe brought the matter to Hashem, and Hashem said, yes, Cain Benot Tzalafchad Dovros said they're correct, they should be given his, his estate, his share of uh, a property in Eretz Yisrael. So in the end of Pashas Maseh, we have a counter-petition. It says the Rashi Ha'avos, the leads of the, 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 the heads of the various families, of the family of Gilad, ben Macher, ben Menasha, of, of Yosef, they were relatives of Benot Tzalafchad, and they were concerned. They said, you previously instructed, Hashem instructed, that we should give the, the share of Tzalafchad. To his daughters, we have a concern. These daughters may marry husbands from other tribes, outside the tribe of Yosef, and then we will lose a share of our nachla. We, Shevet Yosef, will suffer the loss of part of our nachla, which will be added and transferred onto uh, the nachla of another Shevet, meaning we're, we're from Yosef, we're from Menasha. If the daughters of Slavka marry someone from Shevet Ruven, then the nachla will be added to Shevet Ruven. How will that happen? How would the Nachla go to Shevet Ruvain? So Rashi says, because she will be inherited by her sons. When she dies, the property will be inherited by her son. Her son, even though she's from Yosef, she's from Menasha, her son will be considered from Shevet Ruvain because, the, because the, the determination of which Shevet somebody is from is patrilineal, depends on the father. So if Benot Salaf could marry husbands from Shevet Ruvain and they have children, those children will be considered Ruvainites, and they will inherit their mother. When we discussed Pasha's Penchas, we spoke about a different interpretation of how the property will go to Shevet Ruvain. The husband will be Yerushar. If you hold Yerusha Sabal Daraisa, the husband is Yerush's wife, Medaraisa. Everyone agrees the husband is Yerush, but it's Machlokis whether he's Yerush Medaraisa or not. If the husband is Yerush Medaraisa, then that's what the Pasha could be talking about. That, and, that, and, 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 and some Chacham actually learn, actually derive the law of Yerusha Sabal from this parsha, that the concern for transfer of nachla from shevet to shevet is because the husband will inherit her. But either way, the Torah, either way, the Torah is telling us the family of Yosef were concerned that if they marry husbands from another shevet, either via the inheritance of the husband or via the inheritance of the son, the property, the the the, the, the nachla of shevet Yosef will end up being transferred to shevet Ruven, Let's say, so they were concerned about this possibility of their shevet losing nachla. So, Moshe relayed the response of Hashem. Again, Cain, Matev, and Yosef, Dovrim. This is an echo of what I think Hashem said to Tzlafchad, about Tzlafchad, that they were right. Well, they're right also. The, the family of Yosef, they're right about their concern. So what does the Torah do about this? So Hashem says, these are the rules. Tell Benos Tzlafchad, they can marry, they can marry whomever they want. Latov be'neim t'yanu l'nashim. But they should marry members of their own family, of their own shevet, cousins, and so on. Then the Torah says, The Torah says, Hashem agrees with Bnei Yosef, we don't, Hashem does not want Nachla to be transferred from shevet to shevet. Nachla should stick to the, the shevet. 
And then the Hashem generalizes, Vachalbas Yeresh's Nachla. This halacha applies to any daughter, any woman who inherits Nachla from any Shevet of Bnei Yisrael. She's commanded, She should marry someone from her, from her Shevet, from her father's family. In order, in order that the, each man should inherit the Nachla of his own Shevet. And again, the Torah says, Nachla should not be transferred to another Shevet. Again, ki ish b'nachlaso yidbaku matos b'nei Yisrael. Hashem agrees with b'nei Yosef that it's good for nachla to remain with the original shevet. The last few psukim in the, in the Chumash, it says, b'nei Yosef indeed uh, did so. The five women, machla, sirza, chagla, milka, and noah, b'nei Yosef <coughs> they married their cousins, the sons of their uncles, of uh, members of the family of Manasseh. That's how the story, that's how the Chumash ends. So, Kipshuto, according to the simple reading of the text, this commandment that they should marry their own relatives applied to Benos Tlafchad. It applied to any other woman, woman who inherits Nachla in that generation. And Kipshuto, we probably assume that this applies to future generations as well. That any woman who inherits property, at least if we're talking about property in Eretz Israel, she should be required, restricted, to marry only someone in her own shevet. This would be uh, quite a stringency if we follow this law today. Many of us are not inheriting property in Eretz Israel, but if you have property in Eretz Israel, if it's limited to that, so most of us don't know exactly what Shevet we are. But some people do, if they come from Shevet Levi, Cohen, family of Kohanim. So is there actually a prohibition about someone who's not a Kohen from marrying a woman who comes from a family that's not Kohanim, she inherits property, is she actually prohibited from marrying into a Shevet, uh, Shevet Kahuna, Shevet, Shevet Halevi. So the halacha is, Chazal tell us that no, that this prohibition was limited to the, to the initial generation that divided up the land of Israel. This was not a permanent mitzvah like the, the Tarek mitzvahs that we have, even though the Psukim don't give any, any indication that there was a time limit or that this was only a temporary restriction. Chazal, Chazal were Darish that this halacha indeed was limited to that generation. We'll discuss the details of that derivation presently. But first, there's also another way in which Chazal understand these psukim not quite kipshuto. Chazal understand that paradoxically enough, strangely enough, Benos Tzalafchad themselves, Tzalafchad's daughters, were actually not bound by this restriction. Even though it was their situation that triggered the petition of the Bnei Yosef, and even though Hashem told them, even though Hashem told them, he specifically told Benos Tzalafchad, you should marry members of your, of your family, of your paternal family. Nevertheless, Chazal say, they actually were not commanded by, by this restriction. Everyone else in that generation, every other woman, any other woman who would inherit property was bound by this, but not Benos Tzalafchad. Why not? So Chazal explained that it says, since Hashem told Benos Tzalafchad, latov be'neim t'yena l'nashim, that they could marry anyone they want, anyone they please. So the, they can marry anyone they please. Chazal say, Rabbi Yudam Rashmuel says in the Gemara, that Benos Tlafka themselves were not included in this prohibition. Very strange. They were the, they were the ones whose situation triggered the whole, this whole issue. Nevertheless, they themselves, for reasons that the Talmud does not make clear, they themselves were not actually included in the prohibition. So what does the Torah mean when it goes on and it says when it says that uh, 
when it says, they should marry people from their own family. So the Gemara says that was simply a recommendation. It was good advice. They should marry suitable and appropriate husbands who would, they would often be more compatible with family members. So it was, it was a good idea, but there was not the, the actual prohibition of the, that the Pasuk goes on to say, the Pesukim go on to say, she is obligated to marry someone from her family. That obligation did actually not apply to Benos Tzalafet. So according to Chazal, there are two, two aspects of, the, of this parasha that are not Kipshuto. First of all, it seems, the, the Pesukim seem to include Benos Tzalafet. Chazal emphasized no. They say, since it says, since it says, they can marry whomever they please, they were not bound by the prohibition. Second, Kipshuta, we would assume the prohibition applied to all generations. Chazal say no, it only applied to that initial generation that was going to inherit, the, the, inherit and take possession of the land of Canaan, of Eretz Yisrael. The Rashbam, in his commentary to the Parsha, on the Pasuk that says, So the Rashbam says, it means, Kipshuta, we would say, not like Chazal. Whenever, whenever the Rishonim say lefi apshat, it's always uh, a code word. They mean to tell you that Chazal say differently, that Chazal explained the Pesukim differently, but nevertheless, many Rishonim felt it was important to explain Pesukim lefi apshat as well. So lefi apshat, benot slafchad, were also included in the prohibition that when the Pasuk goes on and says, they were also limited to marry only those in their family, in the family of Yosef, of Menashe, and when it says "latov beinayim lefi apshat," it means anyone they anyone they that pleases them within the family. But Chazal understood fakert. Chazal understood in the, op- the opposite way. "Latov beinayim" means literally absolutely anybody. And when it says "achum ashpachas matayavosam," that was simply uh, good advice. That was not binding. That was a recommendation. Nothing more than that. So that's one issue. And the other issue is that, again, that we might have thought that these psukim, that this mitzvah is a, is, is a mitzvah like any other mitzvah in the Torah, and it applies indefinitely. It applies to later generations as well. Chazal say no. Chazal say that, the, that it was limited to that generation. The Ramban, in his commentary to the Torah as well, also grapples with the fact that the simple reading of these psukim is not like Chazal. The, he brings Chazal, he brings the Gemara eventually, the Chazal say it only applied to that generation, but the, but the Ramban says that the, that, that the, the Ramban says Kipshuto, he would have thought, he might have thought that it applies to all generations, that he says it's not clear if there were any other people in that generation who, uh, who had any, any other women who had inherited Nachla, but the Ramban actually does propose that uh, the, the Ramban actually proposes, and eventually he says, like Chazal, Lonad calls their Akbadar Anochlas Aretz, Beisachalukah, it only applied to that generation. But the, but, 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 but the Ramban goes back and forth. Initially he suggests, he says that, he says that the Lachasha Shakasavel Latakina Isahi, that the Torah was specifically was addressing, was only worried about that situation that was before it. That if there were uh, women who were married who inherited uh, who, who inherited nachla like Noslafchad, or they would inherit uh, from now on, there, there would be a concern for Asabas nachla for nachla being redirected uh, from Shevet Yosef to other shvatim. He said the, the Torah didn't want to nullify Yerusha. Yerusha was an important law. The Torah wanted to leave Yerusha in place. And what about cases that would arise in the future? Women who would inherit in the future. 
So he says, well, women who don't inherit can marry whoever they want. Women who, uh, and, uh, and, and, and it could have happened later as well, but the, so the, 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 Ramban, the Ramban is not entirely clear. I, I didn't fully understand all his, uh, all his ins and outs, but the, but the Ramban says the Chazal say it was limited, it was limited to that generation. The Ramban himself is, uh, seems that he's not entirely sure about this. The halacha, though, of course, the halacha we follow Chazal, we say, that the, we say that this prohibition was limited to that generation, and future generations were not, were, were not bound by this restriction. The Gemara makes a... Uh, the, the Gemara says something very interesting about this. The Gemara, the Mishnah in Tanis, the Gemara in Tanis, Baba Bastra, the Mishnah, so much of Masechus Tanis deals with the fast, the ad hoc fast that they used to establish when there was a lack of rain, the end of Tanis deals with the fixed fast that we're more familiar with, the fasts of the, that are upon us now, Shavasabratama, Tishabav. So the Mishnah says, the famous Mishnah, it says there are five, there were five terrible events that happened to our ancestors on Shavasabratamas. There are five that happened on Tishabav. It, it it lists what they were. Shavasabratamas, the Luchos were shattered, Moshe shattered the Luchos, the, the carbon tumid was was stopped, they, the, the the walls of the city were breached. The villain Apostamus burned the, burned the Torah, and and uh, and an idol was placed in the sanctuary in the Hechel. On Tishabav, the five things were there was the Gzera of the Miraglim that the generation of the of the Jews in the desert wouldn't enter Eretz Canaan. The first base of Mikdash was destroyed. The second base of Mikdash was destroyed. The city of Betar was captured by the enemy, the Romans, and the city was uh, and the city of Yushalayim was plowed over as a sign that it would never be rebuilt. The Mishnah goes on. The, the Mishnah talks about some of the halachas of Av and Tishabav, and then the Mishnah wants to end apparently on a uh, happier note. Rabbi Shimon Megamliel says there were no days on the Jewish calendar that were as joyous, that were as uh, uh, that were as uh, intense a yomtov for the Jewish people as the fifteenth of Av, Chamisha Asr Ba'av, Tuba'av, and Yom Kippurim, Yom Kippur. What exactly did they do on those days? There was, uh, there was, we'll discuss that a little bit later. But in the meantime, the, the Mishnah says that these were exceptionally joyous days. These, these were uniquely joyous days. The Gemara then goes on and says, what happened on these days that made them worthy of such joy? What was the historical basis for, for, for these days being considered so joyous? So the Gemara says, in Kippur, we understand, Slicho Mechila, it was a day of, of, of divine pardon, and the forgiveness for Averis, my father showed me that Rav, that Rav, that, that Rav Salvechik apparently, uh, Rav Salvechik apparently lived with this, uh, lived with this kind of uh, feeling that he w- he was ex- he was extraordinarily in an extraordinarily good mood. Certainly by the time Yom Kippur ended, not clear exactly what he was like uh, on Yom Kippur when he was busy davening, but at least after Yom Kippur, after Neila, Rav Aaron Lichtenstein related. That if you wanted a favor from the Rav, you should ask him after Neila. He would be in such a good mood. Someone mentions he, he davened with the Rav on Yom Kippur, and you could see that, uh, that the, 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 Rav, the Rav really felt Yom Kippur, but the Rav's daughter said that after Yom Kippur, he would be in such so ecstatic a state, he would sing the Nagunim of Neila, and uh, he couldn't eat for hours. He was just in such a uh, supernally elevated state. So good, Yom Kippur, we understand why it's a day of uh, great joy. Again, we don't celebrate Yom Kippur, with, a, with an attitude of joy, certainly not on the day itself. There, there is technical discussion whether the mitzvah of Simcha applies to Yom Kippur or not. Certainly, the, it, it's a fairly uh, sober 
and uh, intense day. Tubaav is the other day. So the Gemara says, why? What happened? What's the historical background of the 15th of Av? Why is it such a happy day? So the Gemara has about a half dozen explanations. The first one, the one that concerns us here, it says it was related to the, to, to the lifting of the prohibition against the Shvatim intermarrying. We have the Psukim in the end of our parsha that, that, that say that there was a Tzivui from Hashem that women who inherited property weren't allowed to marry outside their Shevet. And, the, and, and that was something that the Jews apparently found difficult. So when this was finally repealed, the, 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 somehow this was associated with the day of Tubav, and, the, and, and that became the source of such tremendous joy for a, a day of tremendous joy. What exactly is the connection of Tuba'av with the, with the restricting of the prohibition to the original generation and the, the lifting of it and saying it doesn't apply to future generations? What does that have to do with Tuba'av? It's actually not very clear. The, the Rashbam says that since it only applied to the first generation of the Bay Haaretz, so at Tuba'av, that was the end of that generation. So now the prohibition no longer applied. Other Akronim say that what happened in Tuba'av was that's when Chazal had a meeting, the Chachmei Yisrael, initially apparently the Psukim were understood more broadly, they were understood as being a permanent rule, that, that any, any woman in, in, in perpetuity, whoever inherits property, is not allowed to marry outside her Shevet. The Levush explains that Chazal once had a meeting, the Chachmei Yisrael got together, and that meeting occurred on Tubav, and they uh, discussed the matter, and they, and they were Duresh, the Psukim, that actually know that, that this prohibition is limited to the initial generation that inherited the land, and since the meeting occurred on that day, they were so happy on that day that they were, that that day became a great Yom Tov. The Gemara says, what was the drasha? How did Chazal actually decide that the prohibition was, what, what gave them, what made them realize, how did they see from the Psukim that the prohibition was limited to that first generation? So the drasha was, the Pasuk, the Pasuk in Masse says, Zeh this is the matter that Hashem commanded to Bnei Slavchad. Davar Zeh lo yehi noheg ela bedar Zeh. The word Zeh tells you that Zeh Davar Zeh is a limit. Only this, only this generation, only bedar Zeh. Gemara has an extended discussion of, of whether that's in general how we understand the word Zeh, but the Zeh Davar. But that's the Gemara's drasha that this was limited to the first generation. So according to this approach of the Levush of the Rashash. It's actually very interesting. Apparently, the Psukim were initially misunderstood. It's not clear how long this misunderstanding was in place. Was it a few years? Was it a, was it a hundred years? Was it several hundred years? We don't have a, uh, an exact historical date for when this fateful meeting took place, when they finally realized that they were misinterpreting the Pasuk. But eventually, they, they realized the mistake. Apparently, they realized that this... That, so for some period... They were actually apparently strict about this, and then they realized that they were overly strict, that really this prohibition was limited to that first generation. And, that, and once they realized that, Klal Yisrael was so happy that that day became the day of great Simcha. Why were they so happy? Why was this such a, why was this such a uh, major thing? So the simple, the simple explanation is, as the Akronim say, is because it gave the women more freedom to, uh, to marry whoever they wanted. Tell a woman she's restricted in who she can marry. She can only, instead of marrying anyone from all of Israel, she can only marry people from her shevet. That was an onerous restriction, and it, it made it much easier for women to marry to find the to find their heart's desire among the men. 
So it made it much easier for them to marry. So that was the great simcha. That was the great simcha that the, it would be easier for the women to get married. Yes? I just thought of something. Your yes. Yes. Simcha points out that my wife and I are not from the same Shevet. I am neither I am neither a Kohen nor a Levi. My wife's my wife's father is a Levi, and therefore we are likely not from the same Shevet. Whether we have Nachla, again, whether, whether this halacha would, would apply at all if there's no Nachla, even according to the initial strict understanding, is less clear. But I'll call upon him. That was why it was a great simcha for Klal Yisrael when, they, when, when this was repealed, because matches could now occur that wouldn't have occurred, wouldn't have occurred otherwise, and that was a great simcha. Going back to that Mishnah, again, the Gemara gives... Uh, a half, a half dozen different explanations, so apparently Chazal themselves weren't absolutely sure about what the historical antecedents of Tuba'av were, but it is clear that by the time of the Mishnah, at some time in the t- Second Temple period, Tuba'av had become a, a uh, major holiday, a, 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 an extremely joyous day for the Jewish people. How was this joy manifested? What did they do on Tuba'av? So the Mishnah says that that Bahan, Benos Yisrael Yotzos, Bechli Lavan, Shaulin, the women, women of Yerushalayim would go out, they would go out to the, the vineyards, and they would dance, cholos, they would form circles, dance according to most of the, most interpreters, and they would uh, try to attract men who would marry them. What would they say? Mahayu Omros. So the Mishnah and the Brisa record uh, variant versions of what actually occurred. The Mishnah says the women would say, "Young man, Bachar, look at us. Look at us, and 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 see and discern what who whom you want to choose. Don't look at beauty. Look at family. Look at yichus. Alti isha Hashem Beauty is uh, deceit. Beauty is deceiving. It's 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 vain. Look at family. That's what's really important." And that's what they would tell the men. The Gemara brings a, uh, a variation of this account. The Gemara says that the Gemara says that first of all, what would, what would the men be doing here? So the Bryce explains people who had no wives would go here, meaning they would look for wives. And this wasn't just meant to be a party where people would have fun. It was meant to be a, a singles event, essentially, where men and women would uh, find each other and get married. What would the women say? So the Brisa gives a somewhat different version. Those who had yichus, who had family, they would say, "Look at the Mishnah said the miuchases would say, look at uh, you know, that uh, choose yichus, uh, ignore beauty, look for family." The Brisa says different women who had different advantages would stress the value of their advantages. Yefefios, the women who were gorgeous, what would they say? They would say, "Look at beauty, sheni shaliyofi." That's important in a wife, that the wife should be beautiful. That's the most important quality she can have. Those who had yichus, what would they say? They would say, look at mishpacha, as per the Mishnah. Because you marry a wife to have a family, to have children. Those who were not beautiful and apparently didn't have family either, what would they say? They would say, marry us, l'shem shemayim. So the Mishnah says, the Mishnah makes it sound like everyone, uh, no one said anything about beauty, no one had the... No one was actually pushing uh, external beauty. The Bryson, the Bryson says, no, each, uh, each woman, uh, whatever her charms were, those, uh, she, would advertise, she would advertise her particular charms. There's an interesting discussion among the, among the commentaries. 
Pasuk in, the Pasuk in, the Pasuk in Mishlei says, we say it, we recite it Friday night, Eishas Chayel, that's where this Pasuk is, Shekir Achein, Behevelayofi, Isha Yeres Hashem, Hesis Hello. So we say, Shekir Achein, grace is false, deceitful, Behevelayofi, beauty is vanity, is worthless, uh, the only thing that matters is Yeres The commentaries point out, it's difficult to take that literally at face value, because we do find in other, in other sources, in, in the biblical text, in Chazal, they do seem to praise the women for being beautiful. The matriarchs were praised for being beautiful. Sarah, Avram notes, was extremely beautiful. Rivka, the Torah describes as being extremely beautiful. Rachel was described as being very beautiful. And uh, as, as, as the Bryson notes, Enishel Leofi. There are opinions in Chazal that say Enishel Leofi. So how can, how can we say Shekhar Achein Yofi? So there's an, inter- there's an interesting approach taken by the, the Gona Vilna as well as the Peleoites. They say that it means if there, is, if there are no more important qualities, there's no Yerushamayim, that, that all she has is physical beauty, then it is worthless. Shekhar Achein Yofi. However, Isha Yerush Hashem Hitzis Halal, if she does have Yerushamayim like Sarah, like, like Rivka, like Rachel, then you can praise her not just for the Yerushalayim, but also for the for also for the Chain and Yofi. Chain and Yofi are not worthless when 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 they're when they're accompanied by moral qualities, they are valuable. Physical beauty as well, not just internal beauty, physical beauty. So Shekhara Chain Bahavala Yofi, when that's all she has. But Isha Yeras Hashem, he says halal, she'll be praised for the aforementioned Chain and Yofi as well. So in any event, that's what the Bryce says. So some people discuss the, the differences between the Mishnah and the Brisa, but the Brisa at least says that, again, each, each, each type of woman would advertise the charms that she had, whether it was family, whether it was beauty. And if she had nothing, she would just say, then marry us, marry us L'Shem Shemayim, marry us L'Shem Shemayim. The Marshal, the Marshal is uh, a little concerned about the about the, the apparent salaciousness of these proceedings. The Marshal is writing to argue that mixed dancing is a very bad idea. The Marshal is talking about more generally what happens when young men go out and drink, and they, 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 have, they go to you know, nightclubs or bars, they, have, uh, they drink, and there's music involved. The Marshal thinks that this is, uh, Marshal has a very puritanical attitude toward this. He says, drinking with music, all kinds of avarice are caused by such behavior. He has a whole uh, list of what goes wrong. So he says, one of the things they do, the first sin, he says, they dance with the girls, he says. They dance with machal echad mabasulos. The young men get drunk and they dance with the girls, he says. Is that the way a, a Jewish man should behave? That's not what we were taught by Hasidim Harishonim, by, the, uh, by our pious ancestors, he says. He brings, it's, it's interesting, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't have a, a single statement in Chazal that, that prohibits this as a matter of halacha. Instead, he turns to he turns to a careful reading of the biblical text to indicate that mixed dancing is problematic. He brings the pasuk of Oz Tismach Basula B'Machol Bachurim Uzikainim Yachtav. Lasid Lavo will rejoice when Hashem redeems us. So it says the Basula, the girl, will rejoice in, uh, in a circle and dancing. And Bachurim Uzikainim Yachtav, young men and old men together. So it says the young men and old men are together and the girl dances in the circle. But they don't dance together because the boys and the girls shouldn't be dancing together. Similarly, he says, the Pasuk says, Bachurim Vagam Basulos, we say this in Psukhe de Zimra, Zekenim Im Na'arim. So it says that the, so it says that the Bachurim Vagam Basulos, 
young men and young women, and, but, but not together. So can't even are old and young of men or women by themselves can be together. Imna arim, zikainim imna arim. But, uh, but the, but bachurim and basulos, they have no business being together. That's, uh, that, 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 that they can't do. And he says, this applies even lawsuit lavo, he says, where, uh, where, where things will be pure. A fortiori today, he says, when the Yetzirah is very strong and the people are, people are not meticulous about, uh, about these types of these types of modesty. So certainly, he says, the mixed dancing is a problem. So he says, uh, what about the Gemara and Tainus? What about this Mishnah that says that on, on the great holiday of Tubav, the women would dance and the men would be there? He says, no, it doesn't say the men would join the dancing, he says. No, the women would dance. The men would, uh, would watch from a distance, he says. And even that, he says, you know, women, men watching women dancing is not something we tolerate either today. At, uh, at a typical Orthodox wedding today, that the dancing is not only don't the men and women dance together, they, there's, there's a machitza between. We don't, we don't just have women dancing in front of the men and men watching. So how can they do that over here, he says. So there was Uzl Shem Shemayim, he says, because a man has to choose a woman who found favor in his eyes. It's a mitzvah, as I'll say, you're not even allowed to marry without uh, sight unseen. You're not allowed to go into a marriage blind. So for the purpose of marriage, L'shem Shemayim, it is uh, mutter. But today, he says, these young men who go into the, who, who are drinking and with music and, and dancing with the girls, he says, don't tell me that's L'shem Shemayim, he says, they're just ogling the girls, la awesome, because they, for their own uh, coarse pleasures, and, uh, and this is not justifiable at all. I came across this marshal. I was writing an article about Tubav a while back for a, uh, for, for, for a publication run by friends of mine in Lakewood. So when I, when I, when I simply wrote, uh, when I wrote this Mishnah out, and I wrote that the girls would dance and the men would, uh, would watch them, so my editors politely asked me if I could please uh, find, find some way to put this in context and not to, not, not to simply uh, let, it sta- let it stand at face value that it's a good idea for women to dance and men to stand around watching them. So I looked around and I found this marshal who says certainly they weren't dancing together, and even the, the men watching the women, that was only... Uh, that was only uh, L'shem Shemayim, of course, to see if, who they wanted to marry. It still sounds pretty, uh, pretty risque by today's standards. Would we, really think, would we really advise young men today that the way to choose a wife is by having them dance and then pick out the one that they like after watching them? Still, uh, it's, it's, still, it's still a little uh, disconcerting. It's still not, not, quite the way, uh, not quite the way we do things today. But that's what they used to do in the, that's what they used to do in the time of the Mishnah. Now... Someone asked me, I spoke about this on Sunday, someone asked me, they did this on Yom Kippur? Are you allowed to dance on Yom Kippur? We know the halacha is, that Mishnah tells us, that the Chazal made Xerah, but Deraisa, you can't, nothing wrong with dancing on Shabbos or Yontem, but but Chazal made Xerah, you're, you're not allowed to dance on Shabbos or Yom Tov, because there was Xerah that if there's dancing, there'll be music, if there's music, musical instruments may break, Musicians may do a field repair of their instruments, and that's a malacha deraisa on Shabbos. So they made exera, no, no music, no dancing on Shabbos or Yom Tov. So Yom Kippur, how can they possibly dance on Yom Kippur? So you can say that this was a long time ago, that this, this was exera of Chazal not to dance, and this custom was, uh, was before the exera. It's a little hard to say that, because the Mishnah seems to say that this custom, this custom was still practiced in, in the time of the Mishnah, and the time of the Mishnah, they already had this Gzeira. 
But Rav Asher Weiss, I saw, raises this question that he says, how can they dance on Yom Kippur if, it's, uh, if dancing is usher? So he actually does suggest this possibility that maybe the Mishnah is simply relating an ancient historical tradition that used to be a time in earlier generations before they made the Gzera about dancing where they used to dance. Obviously, we don't, we, we, we don't follow these customs anymore. One way or another, these, custom, the, these customs have uh, fallen by the wayside. So maybe by the time Chazal made the Gzera, there, no uh, there was no longer this custom. Maybe that's why they stopped doing it, the dancing. Who knows? But the, that's one suggestion of Rav Weiss. Rav Weiss wants to suggest, and initially he tries, to, he tries to infer from this Mishnah, that there is a major machlokas we've shown him, whether dancing is mutter on Shabbos and Yom Tov, l'tzorach mitzvah, for a mitzvah purpose. The common custom is that there's, that there's really one time that we dance on Yom Tov, and that is Simchas Torah. We dance for the, in honor of the Torah. There actually were some opinions that said you can dance for any mitzvah, the Mishnah Brewer is stricter, and the Mishnah Brewer says it's limited to the special joy of Simchas Torah. But there were some opinions that said you can dance for any mitzvah. Rav Asher says, maybe that's the the Mishnah. Maybe the, Mishnah is a, uh, is, maybe the Mishnah is a support for that view, that for any purpose of mitzvah, you're allowed to dance. And this was a mitzvah. That the mitzvah was getting married, was finding wives. The post can discuss whether you can have music at a wedding. If a wedding that was done, weddings were often done on Friday. If the wedding lasted into the night, could you play music for Simchas Chas and Vakala? That's a discussion. We don't do things like that today, but the, there were opinions that you could. So maybe, maybe that's the the Mishnah. So that's the second way to learn the Mishnah. But the first way to learn the Mishnah is that this was a historical custom which was no longer practiced by the time the Chazal prohibited dancing. <clears throat> the second approach is to say that for a mitzvah, dancing is mutter, and this was called a mitzvah. Rav Asher has a third suggestion. Mechol, it says the Nashim were cholos bekramim. Mem ches vav lamed, ches vav lamed vav saf. Mechol means circle. Usually circle is understood to mean a form of dance. Maybe he says, uh, wasn't actually dancing. Chazal prohibited dancing. Mechol is something else. It was standing in a circle. Certainly not the Pashab shot. It's certainly not the, the way most Nefarshim understand this. Tzarechi and Bechol Zerav Y says he's not exactly sure. He's not sure of, uh, of, of, of how to reconcile the custom in this Mishnah. With the, with the other Mishnah elsewhere, that you're not allowed to dance on Shabbos, and with the dominant, dominant approach to the Mishnah, that even for a mitzvah, you can't, uh, you can't dance. As I mentioned earlier, though, this custom, the, the, this particular custom of Tubav, the, the, the men and women finding each other via the dancing, as well as the general, extraordinary, uniquely joyous character of the day, are things that have fallen by the wayside, even though this was once apparently an extraordinarily joyous day in the calendar, at some point in history, they, both the day and its customs fell into obscurity. By you know, at least as far at least as uh, at least as far back as several hundred years ago, we really find virtually no uh, no vestige of the custom, no vestige of the day's joyousness left. The one trace we find is the Shulchan Aruch and the Achronim bring. There was a minog not to say. Not to say Tachnun on Tubav, because there was still it still, still retains some type of character of the day as a specially joyous day. In the modern era in Eretz Yisrael, there's been a kind of resurgence in the celebration of Tubav. They call it the Chag Ahava, the holiday of love. It's uh, more profanely people sometimes compare it to a Jewish Valentine's Day. I'm not sure how much rabbinic support uh, there is for such a custom. Again, if you do it. Uh, in a manner of Kedusha and Tara, if you do it modestly, if you, if you simply make it a day where we focus on helping women and men get married, 
that would certainly seem to be very much in the spirit of Chazal. Obviously, uh, there are ways to do that properly and ways to do that less properly. But again, I, I, I'm not actually so familiar with the culture in Eretz Yisrael. It definitely has, the day has a certain popularity. I don't actually know how much rabbinic support there is for it, though. But again, it, this is an in, indubitable fact, a recorded fact in the Mishnah, that it once was a day which was marked by, by activities that were meant to help men and women find each other and get married. And if somebody wants to uh, reinstate that character of the day, there is a certainly a, an apparently strong case that could be made that that is very much in the spirit of the way the day was celebrated in the time of Chazal, or even earlier, or, or even earlier than the time of the Mishnah, as we mentioned earlier.